Welcome to the Christian Emergency Podcast, a podcast for Christians spooked by the growing hostility in the culture today. We will tackle a range of topics from current events, persecution, missions, and what it means to be the church. You will gain valuable insights from those experienced working with persecuted Christians around the world, insights we all need to chew on in these strange days. Together, may we help the church stand. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Christian Emergency Podcast. I'm Andy Coleman, your host, and today we have the honor of speaking with a Christian, that's right, a brother in Christ from the land of Afghanistan. That is a rarity. Most of us have not had the opportunity to talk to Christians from that land, from that country. In fact, I know that I've spoken with many Afghans who told me that there are no believers in Afghanistan. But our guest today really stands against that, and we're going to be able to peel away some truth, some insights that's going to be really helpful to us. We're joined by a brother that we will call Luke. Luke, welcome to our program. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be in your program. Well, it's a pleasure for us, and I know a bit about your work and your background, and that's why I'm, I am so excited to have you on today. And for Christians around the world, you know, we have Christians listening from North America, from Europe, from Asia, from the Middle East, and your perspective, I think, has so much value for all of us in one fashion or another, in one way or another. We're all going through pressures. We're experiencing some challenges and pushback as believers. It's, it's not popular in the cultures we live in, but very few rise to the level of what Christians experience in Afghanistan so that's why I think that uh, you can really encourage us and, and speak some wisdom into the situations that we see. So with that, would you just take a moment to introduce yourself? My name is Luke, and I was born in Afghanistan in the middle of the country. Uh, most of the time that I was growing up was war and first Russians and then the civil war break, especially in the 90s when I was growing up. So the, the late 90s, Taliban captured the country. Mm-hmm. And that's where I was going to middle school. And um, I also attended Madrasa, which is the religious school, learning about um, the theology of Islam. And mm-hmm. continuing through that, but I was actively seeking to know God in a way that I want to have a personal relationship with God. So growing up to being a, uh, finishing the high school, then the Taliban government finished. And in 2003, I was able to attend the university in uh, capital city. But at that point, I was not really practicing much of religion, but I was somehow seeking this true God that I was after. So um, while doing the medical university, I read about the human system. And that made me wonder uh, how someone should have created that put this together because how this worked together is, is amazing yeah and and you have to we have to build many machines to do just the job of the body and how it works so that was wonderful for me and the world around and i one day i prayed and i said god i want to follow you the one you created me with all of this complexity inside me i want to follow you and i knew some some uh foreigners that was living in my country 
I had some, some friendship with them, but I did not know which religion they are at that point because we are assuming that if someone is from the West, they're Christian. If someone is from the East, then they are Buddhist. Sure. So that's, that I had that general assumption that from this Eastern Asian friends that I knew that they were Buddhist. And so I asked them one day, I said, are you Buddhist? They said, no, no, we're a Christian. We follow Christ. And so one night I had a dream. In my dream, someone told me that to go and ask for that friends for a book. And so I, I, I went next time to them. It was a few days after until I saw them. And I went there. I was very nervous. I told them that I want the book. So they look at me, and of course, I was very nervous. So they refused to give me the book. And then uh, they said, come next week, we will talk. So we will not be able to see each other in the middle of the week because I was a student and they were doing the work. So weekend, next week, and I went there, and then they said, you can read it in our home. So I sat down and at their home, and, I, and I, I began to see the first time, very first time in my life, the Bible. And it was a Persian printed Bible, New Testament only. On those days, we did not add the Dari Bible yet, which is like our dialect. So I started from the Gospel of John, and it was very difficult for me to understand. This is the first time I'm reading a religious book in my own language, but it's still difficult to understand. So I, I keep reading through through the Gospel of John and until John chapter 10 that touched my heart. And it's, it's the title, The Good Shepherd, because where I come from, you know, we are somehow in all our life with the livestock, with that. So I understood. I understood that what does mean to shepherd, what does mean to care for that. And especially verse 10 that says that the thief come to kill, steal and destroy. I have come to give you life and abundance. So for me, that made me to wonder for days that the first part I know, but the second part, what does it mean? So I was like explaining and asking my friend, they explained to me that if you believe in Jesus, if you repent of your sin and you believe in Jesus, you will have eternal life. And that is like something like, you know, flash, you know, like a light that's, that's, that's around you. So for me, I was like, this is what I'm right. looking for. But how? And so going through this, and it took me a while to understand because of many questions that I had about my background. Uh, the, the question that I was taught in the religious school and madrasa, it took me a little bit longer, but I decided to read the entire Bible. So he, I read the whole Bible in one year from Genesis to Revelation. Wow, that's amazing. And there's, there's so much in there that I'm sure we could tease out. So you had a dream, and you were instructed to go and ask for the book. For our listeners who might not understand, you mentioned that they, they looked at you and they, they didn't give you a book right away. They might have been a little bit apprehensive. Why would that have been? Those days, it was very, very rare for Afghans to start looking and maybe in those days in the entire country might be 100 believers or so yeah. as the country was just opening up right after of two civil war after taliban yeah. the mentality that was there so they had to be careful but people were not like actively seeking still the mentality is there you know many right. people still had their beard because they were afraid that they can't they didn't trust that maybe the taliban will come back right yeah, so there were real risks in place with that. And I just point that out because sometimes I think in other countries, we're nervous to share our faith or to talk with people, even if they're asking questions. But in this scenario you're describing, it was very serious. We're talking about potential pressures or, or fallout from the Taliban, and yet these individuals still figured out a way to make sure that they were able to, to share with you and, and give you access to the Bible 
So yes, they opened their house for me. Yeah, it really become a model in my life how this couple treated me from the time when I asked, and there was no trust in how the hardship by their family. But they opened up their house for me. They opened up their arms yeah. for me, and and for the next four years that I was in the university, I was keep going into their home once a week. We would read the Bible, we would talk, we would pray, just become part of their family. They were just open. They received me knowing that it could be a risk for them, for right. their two-year-old child. And it could be a risk for me, but it's just that because of their love for Christ, they opened up their house. It was a huge risk. But praise God for that, for them, for taking that risk, uh, for having the courage to do what they did and to allow you just to to grow and be exposed to the Bible, to, to Christian teaching and to Jesus Christ. So I think a lot of us can apply that in our own lives. We need to take some risks for Christ. We need to be willing to take some risks for Christ and to demonstrate some courage and, and backbone when we're dealing with others. Of course, they treated you very lovingly and gracious, and there was a friendship in place, so all of that's very important too. So I also wanted to point out for our audience, if they didn't pick up on it, you were talking about how you were reading this in Farsi. Now, for you, your native language would be Dari, but they're very similar languages, right? Am I right in that? Yes, yes. So that's interesting that if if you can speak Farsi, the odds are you can understand Dari and vice versa. I point that out because on earlier episodes of the Christian Emergency Podcast, we were talking about some of the really rapid growth in the church in Iran, in the Persian-speaking world, and Afghanistan is, is certainly in that mix as well. Uh, because the languages are very similar, so that that growth that's happening in Iran is also carrying over into Afghanistan to a, a more limited extent. But that's part of the part of what's going on as well. Would you be willing to share a little bit more about the dream you had that directed you to this couple? So for the for the dream, I I heard a voice in my dream, and the voice was saying to go for that friends that I had for that couple and ask them for a book. Uh, and, and that was a confusion, but also fear. And, and I remember when I wake up, I couldn't sleep. It was fear. And I was very curious because where I come from, my background, I was, was is this a magic book? Which kind of a book that would be? Because, yeah. you know, just referring to that. But then later on, when I read the book, this is a written book about the revelation of God that he chooses to reveal himself to man, I guess. Well, that's that's really interesting, because working in the Middle East and in Central Asia, we would cross paths with Christians, and when you would listen to their testimony, often there are dreams or there's visions, and we're, we're starting to hear about that more in the West. But what you shared is, I think, a very important takeaway for us, and that is Sometimes I think that we're hearing about these things happening on the missions field or in other countries, and there's almost an assumption that dreams and visions are essentially saving people. But what I've noticed is that the dreams and visions typically direct somebody that has that dream or the vision to somebody or to the Bible itself. It directs that person to the Bible, to the gospel, and to those that can share that and get that to them they read it, they come to know Christ, and then they're saved. Has that been your experience as well? Yes, yes, that is my experience because uh, it's, it's always pointing. The Holy Spirit is pointing people 
and and God is using God is using yeah. His people, His church, uh, but also there is the written word of God or the audio word of God that we haven't nowadays with the technology. Right. So if I have a dream or someone else has a dream, and doesn't matter how this amazing dream is, if we are not talking to another believers, if we are not finding another Christians churches, the Bible we cannot survive by our own. We might just know the name of God or we must know generally the name of Jesus, but I think that's not enough. You know, if someone had a dream and they are not, they have not been able to talk to someone, I would encourage them to go find someone, contact. There is whatever language they speak. There are hundreds of websites, uh, social media sites that they can contact and find someone to talk to them, share yes. their experience, share their dream, because a dream alone will not save us. We need to hear the word of God. We need to yep. repent and believe in Jesus. Yep. So that's been my experience. You're you're spot on. The dreams and visions prompt us to the Word. They they prompt us to the Bible, and they direct us to connect with the body of Christ, with the church, with a local church, a local believer. I've seen that time and again. So that's really neat to to talk to you as somebody who has experienced something like that. I know that a friend of mine, Tom Doyle wrote a book called Dreams and Visions. So if any of our listeners want to go out and, and learn more about that, uh, here are some more examples of it. It's called Dreams and Visions by Tom Doyle. And it also stood out to me, Luke, when you describe reading John and how John 10 really stood out to you, this description of the good shepherd. I think that there are so—you, I believe, probably— appreciated more of that text and that description than a lot of other believers. And I think that's because, like you described, you understood uh, the shepherd analogy. You understood what life was like from that agricultural perspective, from just the experience in Afghanistan. And I'm just putting this out. I don't know if, if you've read this, Luke, but there was another book by Philip Keller called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23, where Philip Keller was a shepherd when he was a young person, and just the parallels that he draws and the insight that he's able to share that was lost on me because I didn't understand the perspective of a real-life shepherd, but it was just beautiful. And so I can understand how when you read John 10, how it really made such a deep impact on you. So if anybody's curious to get a little bit more insight into that, it's Philip Keller's A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23, very short book, very easy read. Luke, have you had a chance to read that? No, not yet, but I will, okay. I will look through it. Yeah, well, that might be a, a good one for, for your home country. I don't know. So Yeah. But interesting stuff. Okay, so you are essentially able to come and you're able to consistently get in the Word. Sounds like this couple was able to provide some discipleship and some help. What happened after that? I was continuing reading with them until I finished my university. I got a job in a different city, and I had to uh, move from there. By that time, I was done about three times reading the entire Bible <laughs> and four years with them, going through uh, many, many texts in the Bible, going through, discussing with them, praying, reading. I, I, I picked up a habit of reading my Bible every day. So every day I would pick up, pick up my Bible and I would read a few chapters and I would pray even though I was just alone. I went to my hometown. There's no any other believer that I know, not expats, not locals, nobody. I don't know. And in those days, even there was not a way to, to be able to communicate with them. I could only email them once a week or so because of limited access to internet and the rural area. But I was yeah. working and I was praying and they told me that you need to pray that God will provide. 
until I ran to another group of young Christians, three young men from the United States. They were in my hometown. And I was very surprised to see them there. Someone told me that these guys are praying before, before food. And I said, I need to get to them. So I was able to connect with them. It's a, a longer story. But, and again, they received me. And that's the beauty of the body of Christ. That they also took risk. Risk of their, their job, risk of their lives, risk yeah. of their very own lives. And they received me. And we very soon started our discipleship praying together. And, and I was continuing reading the Bible. Got married, shared with my wife. She became a believer. But that connection through the body of Christ was just keep going. There are many things that I did not know. I wasn't sure how it goes. I did not want to talk to other people or people know to me because a very extreme honor and shame community that right. we are a very small town. Everyone know each other. What if people know about me? And they will say, okay, the son of this person is a Christian. So how would I live there? So all of these things that I had to deal, but there was a fear of honor, losing the honor. Right. And I was telling myself that I will be a believer, but I will not share with anyone until, again, it's just, I'm reading the Bible and very actively, again, I had a dream that in my dream, God is saying, I want you to share. I want you to share. So I, I, all of these believers that I meet up to this point, they were encouraging me that you need to share until now I have only shared with my wife, but nobody else. So after that, I was challenged to share. And then I started sharing with one person. We ran into some problems very quickly in my hometown, the secret police find out and I, had, and I lost my job from, because of that, my boss one day called me, he said, you're a young and talented person, but sorry to see you go, you need, I will recommend you to get another job, but there is no job for you in the government because of the secret police is every day coming to my office and they're asking about everything you do and they're coming. So I was a few times interviewed by them, but of course they will not directly telling me why they're interviewed, but they will just kind of oh, we want to know about your job. But then when I said an interview, they would go through many personal questions, things like that, which was very uncomfortable. Finally, I had to leave my job, which kind of in an honorable, honorable way, I was fired from my job. So I had to leave. That was my first experience of sharing someone beside my wife. And then that person also ran through some problems. He had to run away. And so I got a different job, but it continues until until took me to the prison where I was imprisoned uh, two years later when I was very boldly and actively sharing with so many people, talking, and then we got into prison for uh, about uh, a month. And then the, uh, about 10 years ago, 2010, when persecution broke among the, the Christians in Afghanistan, a small community that was growing at that time. Uh, of course, it was different than, than the time where I was, I was just a new believer, 2005, 2004. And now it's 2010, there are hundreds of believers around the country. So the police started going out after the house churches that was formed. And so there was many people were put in prison. Had to, a lot of people had to leave. The people that I heard the gospel first from them, they, a lot of them had to leave because of their country. Taliban kidnapped. Some of them were killed. So their government ordered all of these people to leave the country. So there was lots of, lots of changes through I am as a, as a new believer going through. And all of these things kind of become part of my life. Man, I can't imagine going through all of that. Wow, I could spend a lot of time just pulling that apart. But that's high drama there in Afghanistan, um, as it sounds like the local church, these house churches were growing, and they grew to an extent where there was pushback. And that pushback came in the form of persecution. But it's really interesting. So you said that you actually had a second dream, if I'm hearing you right, 
And it was in that dream that you were told to share. Is that correct? Yes, yes, because I was very scared, and yeah. I explained I wasn't. And after that, I was, I got the boldness, and something changed. Huh. And now I'm up to that point. I am the only believer in my hometown and yeah. my whole province of about a million people. There is no any other believer at all. So there's one million people, and I am the believer. But yeah. I'm scared to share my faith. There is three other expats that live in in this entire province of a million people. So there is language difficulties for them. There is so many other social you know, sure. distances and the stuff that they had to deal with that. But there's only one local and three experts. So if well, we're not sharing, then who's going to share with them? Right. I'll say this, just listening to your, your story, what stands out to me is you, you heard this instruction to, to go and share really a command, it sounds like, and you did it. You were obedient. And your first experience doing so is pressure. You lost your job. And I'm sure that was devastating, and yet you continued in obedience. You didn't stop. Were you were you at any point tempted to stop after that first experience? That was hard because that was what I studied in university. So I was kind of saying goodbye forever for that yeah. job, and, and that's what I went to university for. But again, I speaking to this. You know, we need to be part of the body of Christ. We are stronger yeah. together in prayer and encouragement and. And that's the beauty because we should never isolate ourselves from another believers or a church that we are part right. of. So I'm talking to this to the other brothers and they encourage me to say, pray. We also pray. God might give you a better job. And I got a different job. It was different. It was not the field where I studied, but it was okay. Yeah. So God provided a job for me. And that encouragement that keep, you know, you see the hope, you see the eternal hope in Christ. Yes. And there is nothing me in a small town in Afghanistan that could suffer more than Christ than cross. Like I hinted at before in earlier in this podcast, I think there's so many takeaways for us, whether you're a believer in Germany or China or America or Afghanistan, we can stand up for Christ. We can share about Christ. You were, as you described, you were one in a province of a million souls, a million people, and yet you still stood up even though there was n- nobody else. And I just encourage everybody to look around them, and it, it may feel like there's not a lot of believers around you, and you might be tempted to stay quiet and, and just kind of hunker down. But we can be obedient, even if we are only one or two, or there's just a handful of us. We can be obedient and, and share about him. So I really loved that part of, of what you shared. And you didn't just lose a job. You said two years after that, you ended up being imprisoned for a month so you were paying a real cost, a real heavy price that most of us honestly won't have to go through, at least not in the immediate time. We should be prepared to stand regardless of the pressure that comes. What was your experience in prison like? On that day, I met someone from the house church that we were part of. He brought a new person and he told me that this guy is interested. We sit down, we prayed, we read the Bible, we talk, we drink tea. He left my home at 11 o'clock and a.m., 11 p.m., police was in my house. They surrounded my house. Yeah. And I uh, was confused because there was like 60, 70 police, 12, 13 police vehicles surrounded all of my house. All the neighbors were around and they jumped from the wall they were in bed. They just came and captured 
handcuffed me on the back and started searching our house, took everything, took our photos for wedding, for passport, for IDs, for diplomas, for whatever we own. They took it and throw them there in their police tracks. Uh, they then arrest my wife because we had two very young kids, three-year-old and a one-year-old. And, and they left my wife and they took everything. Even my wife didn't have a phone to call someone. She didn't have money to go take a taxi to go to someone, a family or someone in the city. So they took us into the police custody and through all night questioning and shouting and yelling. This was just a new thing in the, in the history of Afghanistan and the modern history of Afghanistan. There was a, something newer in that city, especially we were in Kabul. There was in, in, in 2004, another brother that was arrested and so he went to the court. It was a, in media all over. But right now we are in a different city. So it's just the first time. People did not know how to respond. The law didn't know. So they were all talking. We hear that through this. So that was like punching and they were like beating. And, and, and every five minutes they were threatening to shoot you. And even on the way when they were carrying me from my home to the police headquarters. And they were talking like this. Let's shoot them. And yeah. it's me and my another friend. Shoot them somewhere. And and leave them or, or return away with them and kill them and go to Taliban. So there are lots of this kind of things because how zealous they are for the yeah. religion and that zeal that, but finally we were in the police station. Everyone hate us. We were the worst people there. And um, the charges they put against us was provoking differences between religion. That's a crime against national security and Afghanistan law. And so we are, uh, we were kept on the, on the national security prison. That's why they were transferred us from there. So it was much bigger than we were thinking because we were normal people. We live very normal and it's very normal street in a poor area of the city. But then when we were in prison, there were so many people talk and all of this, so we were confused. So it sounds like that what you described was there was a guest brought to the house church or to meet with you, and really that, that person was an informant. Is that correct? Yes, Yes, because everything that we had the conversation at night on the interrogation police was telling me. They tell me that we knew everything. So everything that we discussed on that meeting at yep. night, they, 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 they told me. And that's, that's a pattern that, was, that we saw quite often in many countries, like I said, in the Middle East and Central Asia, is the real risk of you know, a house church being infiltrated or informants getting in and reporting, uh, appearing to be interested in the gospel or appearing to be a believer, but really working on behalf of the government or others. So that has been a real risk and, and caused problems. And yet that can't shut us down either. I suppose at some point it'd be really neat to talk about your thoughts on ways to go about that. But um, I, I still want to kind of focus on your story a little bit more. And I also want to just pause real quick and point out for our listeners that in Afghanistan, when Luke is describing all of this, Afghanistan is unique in the sense that it's not like most countries, even in Central Asia and the Middle East. In most of those other countries, you will still have some form of an above-ground church. You will still have some church buildings, some people that have been you know, known as Christians for a long time. So in those cultures, yeah, there might not be many Christians, but it's not an alien concept in those countries that somebody could be a Christian or that somebody might have a Bible or somebody might talk about Christ. But in Afghanistan, they really don't have an above ground church. You're not going to go to Afghanistan and see church buildings. You're not going to see crosses or anything like that. So when Luke is describing 
his work and his experience, he was really advancing the kingdom of God in this area that the teachings of Christ were just not there. And so the pressures that he encountered, the pressures that I observed in Afghanistan were uniquely intense, I think partly because uh, there was no understanding of a, of a Christian witness or a Christian presence like you might have in other countries. Essentially, if you're a believer in Afghanistan, you're part of the underground church, the informal church, a house church, something that is just going on in the communities, just in their homes. So hopefully that helps provide a little bit more of an understanding of, of this situation. How did you get out of prison? How did that end? In the prison, it was uh, my, my friend who was also a fellow Afghan. He was, compared to me, he was a much new believer. He was just about a year of believer. But he was very strong, and we couldn't talk together. But at some point on the first day when we were in, under the interrogation, we saw it very briefly each other, and he told me that who has reported us because he was in my house. He said, yeah, he said, there's this guy coming. He said, I knew I'm really sorry. I said, you're going to have to apologize for that. He looked at me, and he told me that, do you know what will happen to us? I said, I don't know. They might kill us. He said, there would be an honor if they kill us for Christ. And that he is encouragement as a new believer to me that I was an older believer. But mm. by that time, it just, it just stared up my faith. Yeah. Um, and that he is very strong because I was worried what about them. He was very strong. He just stood there and said, it's an honor to die for Christ. A few times when the police was interrogating us and, and you know, we were both, we just shared our testimony. We told them this is what happened to both of us, how we come to know Jesus. And they asked us questions. We said, the Bible says this, the Bible says that. And they were like, one of these people got very upset and he took his pistol and he said, I'm going to kill these two people. And my friend said, yeah, just go ahead and shoot. It would be an honor to, to die for, for Jesus. So his other friend came and said, come down, come down. And then, so we were talking and then at the end, when they were transferring us after this interrogation, they find so many Bibles in my house and MP3s and that there was a small white MP3s and Dari faith come by hearing. So that was mm-hmm. like a, with a battery in those days. So they, many of them and they transferred that to the NDS, which is the Afghan Intelligence Service Prison. And they are there keeping the criminals against the national security, like terrorism and things like that. So we are, we are kept in, in there. Um, and they, again, we are going through the interrogation. A few of the police officers, they come to me and they said, we are very curious because you told me everything we are talking to you. You're saying the Bible says this, the Bible says this. I want to listen to the Bible. They said, how we can use the Sipitris? So they still... How about half of the impetries on the way transferring? They steal some of that that they wanted to listen. And they asked me, I said, put the battery and I just put the headphone and you can listen to that. Yeah. So I don't know what happened to them, but uh, they were very curious about all of that we said. At some point they were saying these people are brainwashed because you no, know, we are in India and there's full of Taliban and Al-Qaeda prisoners. And they were saying, look, at you know, we see every day these people, Taliban, Al-Qaeda, they want to suicide, they're brainwashed. These guys are also brainwashed by the Westerners. And we said, no, it's not the brainwash. It's just that you need to love God. But the first, you need to understand the love of God. That's just a different zeal that they have. Yeah. We're not having the same thing. Our zeal is just Jesus died for us. And there's nothing we can do that it would match up to what he has done for us. So this was very hard after that when we get into this NDS prison. It much, much harder. I was in solitary for five days and very small cell. They would only take us to two bathroom two times a day for two minutes only, not enough water, nothing, sick, and couldn't eat. And so there was interrogation going day and night. And the times, we don't know what the day is, is at night because of the huge lights was going on there. And so that the questioning is going. 
and ongoing and ongoing. And then they told us that if you return to Islam, we will let you go. And at that point, I'm in my cell and I'm thinking and walking around. It's a very small cell, like probably like one and a half meter by one and a half meter. That's just very small. Yeah. One person can lay. And so, and I, at that point, I was really weak. I was worried about my wife, about kids. And I said, what if I just say I'm going to return to Islam? What if everything was a coincidence, all of these things? And I'm just talking to myself and I'm just clashing with myself. And suddenly it's like something in, in your brain going, like all of these pictures go in my brain of what everything that God has done. Yes, the people that I meet all could be coincidences. All of these different people that I meet could be coincidences. But what about the things that God has done in my life? And those things are not coincidences. And there's not just one of them that I would say, okay, yes, there was a dream and that happened. But there are so many of things that I see God very much in my life. And that cannot be a lie. That yeah. has to be truth. And if there is a truth, if there is a true God, then must be this God. So I made my decision that they took us again to interrogation and they told me that, do you want to return to Islam? I said, no, I do not. I said, I do not want to, to, to leave. He said, do you regret for what you have done? Because I don't know, somehow they want you to have this regret of what you have done. Because we are criminals. They said, no, I don't regret. It's in my honor. And they said, write that down in your file. So, so I was handcuffed. They opened my handcuff and write that down that I'm not going to return to Islam. I'm, I, I, I do not regret of my decision following Christ. And I wrote that down. I signed it. And the guy said, okay, no, we have to put your finger trim. He looked at me and he said, you're a stupid young man. I was 24 years old on that time. He said that uh, you don't know what you did. You just signed your dead sentence with your hands. I said, it's okay. If it is my dead sentence, let it, let it be that, that way. So that was kind of the, the last interrogation ever we had. And then we were out. There was a lot of, of course, advocacy going on outside of, outside of Afghanistan. We didn't knew there was so many prayers. And it was not yet our time to die. Yeah. So God has a time for everything. And, and if the time for us to go under persecution, we will go because everything is under Christ's control. He is the sovereign God. Yes. Everything in heaven inherited under his authority. If for some reason he allows his children to go through trials, through hardship, it's, it's his authority. He can do it. But there is nothing like coincidence or I did a mistake. I was in prison. No, it was time that God wanted. So what I learned in that one month in prison, there was no university in the world that can teach me. And I uh, really knew that this is God. It must be God. If there is a true God, this is Jesus. So there was like, I had no question. Before I had question. Before I had like things. But after I come out of prison, there is no question. Even like during my imprisonment, I don't, I'm not sure whether I will be in prison for 25 years after the life sentence in Afghanistan or I will be hanged. Right. But I know this is God. And after coming out of that, there is no question. It's all so. So I had to go through that and, and, and to, to become a stronger. After that, the phase changed for us. We saw so many people coming to know Jesus and we saw just a totally different picture. It's like you're in a different culture, yeah. a different country. Uh, so many house churches had to stop on that year. We had to go to our neighboring country for a couple of months, return to my country in 2011. And we were just looking around. Rarely house churches are meeting. We started praying in my apartment. It's five of us. Every one of us been in prison from these five people. We have been, three of us have been in prison and the two others are running for their life from other places. We are all known the capital city of Kabul. Every night we gather to meet what we do, how we do it. We're gathering after the dark and we mm -hmm. pray for two, three hours, four hours every night. And we're talking because police told us that we are, we're going to put all of the leaders and that way they're not going to be able to do it.
So the technique that they were using that, okay, if you put all the Christian leaders and they are not able to meet, we said, what if every Christian is a leader? What if every Christian is able to pray, to read the Bible, to teach the Bible, to share the Bible, that they, everyone either is in prison or not in prison. So let's change that. And we were very fearful on those days. We were not walking in the street in daylight. Maybe there was nothing following us, but we were very suspicious of everything around us happening. But we were praying. And, and that five of us in three months, it became 65. And from there, it just went to hundreds. Wow. There's just so much gold in, in what you're sharing about. It's really exciting to hear this example of faithfulness. I really love what you said about how all that you learned in that one month in prison, even though you didn't know how that was going to turn out or what it would ultimately lead to, but that you couldn't have learned that at all, no matter how long you studied in a university. I mean, God did put you through that trial and strengthen you and is using that now uh, for his kingdom. Even right now, for, I, I'm convinced for people that are going to be listening to this interview, I think that's really going to strengthen them and embolden them in their own walk. What if every Christian is a leader? What if every Christian is active and working and faithful like you're describing in what you did in Afghanistan uh, with a handful of believers and by being faithful and by being bold and just seeing God move through that? You didn't have to strong arm anything. You didn't have to force anything. You were just faithful. And you did what you could in the circumstances you found yourself in, and God did the rest. So that's amazing. So you guys started to see church growth, and you said it was almost like seeing a different culture, a different country. What came after that? After that, it was known to the people in Afghanistan. There are some Christians because of the TV, all the media, the talks that happened. And so there are more curiosity. We are meeting lots of young people that are coming to know the Lord and they are sharing with their families that the growth is happening through this kind of cells and circles of friendship and family. That's how it grow. And, yeah. and, and after our imprisonment, after by three years, we had like 500 believers in our network. And there are other networks as well. I'm just speaking for, for, yeah. for our own. Uh, grow and so many house churches have started around the country and that that growth is just happening through this either as a university students or there is a family or there is a, a sports team or just just taking out this through circles that people are getting together and they're able to share the gospel and going yeah. forward and people just coming and and asking and, and it grows it grows by the time we are talking you know we're estimating thousands of people we're estimating that almost in every province of Afghanistan, there is a believer. But the time I was a believer, 15 years ago, the people that was discipling me, the city that I was five years later in prison, they told me that's impossible, that city. Five years later, I was in prison in that city, but there was four house churches very actively in that city. So there is nothing impossible for God. No. We Places look hard for us. Yes, there are def- definitely there are many countries, cultures that are hard, difficult. They're not tolerate, they're not accepting, they're not even receiving Christians. But for God, there's nothing hard. And he is winning hearts and minds of people toward him because he died on the cross. He is saving the people. And, and Romans, and Paul is writing that the one that is chosen, he will, he's bringing them, gathering them. Wow. How would you describe the church in Afghanistan today? What's going on right now? Afghanistan, since... Ten years that I've been in prison, I've been one of the top ten most persecuted countries in the world. And now, and 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 four or five years in a row, I've been after North Korea. Yeah. But the church have grown. 
the church have grown and right now there is thousands and thousands of Afghan believers mm -hmm. from different tribes, from different provinces and they and many, many Afghan leaders that I serve. We are doing leadership training yearly. We are able to train about 100 to 120 new leaders every year that are serving. So we have been doing that in the last four years and each of those leaders are serving other people. So we're going from 400 believers into like 400 leaders now. So it's, uh, it's, it's amazing how it goes, but it's all just how God is working there. And it, and it amazes us how, how God is working, even during this quarantine and lockdown. Yeah. We saw so many people that they could not meet. One of those churches is an example that they stopped meeting. They couldn't meet because of the COVID. And most of them, they could not have access to internet to meet through Skype or Zoom or WhatsApp. And so we encourage them to share with their families. After the, the lockdown, this uh, house church that was had to separate, each one of them shared with their family and some of their neighbors or some of their relatives. And that nine small groups emerged out of that during the lockdown. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And that situation forced them to be there, that isolation. You know, as Christians, we don't like to be isolated. It's good to be together, but sometimes we don't know how God is using that for his purpose. Those people were first to start sharing, talking to their people. And, and, and like that, that's just one an example. Even during this lockdown, one of the hardest times for my country, we, are, we are have to fight a war. And we have to fight poverty and extreme poverty. And then Corona is coming, lockdown is coming. It's just, there's no way to describe all of that. But God is using even those day, those, those, those times to, to draw his people. Man, this is amazing stuff. Luke, how would you like our listeners, how can we pray for you, your work, and for what's going on inside Afghanistan? The prayer request is for the Afghan church. That it's, it's growing to be strong and faithfulness for the Afghan leaders, unity on, on the church. Uh, we are still much smaller, so there is more unity. But as the church is growing, we are praying that this unity will stay. Yeah. And, and, and pray that more and more, even still there are many towns and cities in Afghanistan that there is nobody to share the gospel. There is many people, generation after generation, have, not, have never heard the gospel. So pray that to, through many ways that God is using that they will be able to hear this and they will be able to connect to the believers so that they can hear the gospel and, yeah. and, and, and want the growth of the church. Well, we can certainly be praying for that and lifting that up. Luke, this was really encouraging for me personally. Just, I, I mean, a lot of these details I knew, but I'm just still so blessed just to, to walk over that ground again and hear it and hear some new details I, I trust that that is true uh, on behalf of our audience as well. If our listeners wanted to find out more about the work in Afghanistan or maybe even your own ministry efforts, are there some ways that they can do that? Yes, right now the, the, the group that we are is called Afghan House Church Network and a website that we developed is called khabarkhosh.org. That's K-H-A-B-A-R. K-H-U-S-H dot O-R-G. So here is a link to our social media networks. We have hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people visiting our Facebook page, YouTube, but there are also materials for people, ads and diary, books and articles and a number of others. There's also afghanministry.org that people can know. There's an English more for about our work and who we are and what we are doing. We appreciate the prayers. We appreciate the partnership of our brothers and sisters and, and, and the Western world. And 
and how God is using them to start yeah. the church in places like my country. Where and 15 years ago, I was not a believer. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing how God works, and you're right. This is a beautiful picture of the church. It's a picture of believers in the West, in the East, in the North, in the South coming together, standing as one, praying as one, and it's just a joy to be able to to hear from you, and also perhaps some of our, our listeners are going to be able to get really well informed by looking at the materials you mentioned all of those links we'll include in our show notes page, so go ahead and check that out so you can follow up on the websites that Luke mentioned. But uh, pray for Afghanistan, pray for Luke, pray for the believers in there who are taking risks even today against the pressures of poverty, war, violence, and hardship to make Christ famous inside that country. Yeah, let's let's be active about it. Let's be leaders ourselves in our own communities, and let's stand for Christ even if it costs us. So, Luke, I can't thank you enough for taking some time to share with us. I would love to have you back on again uh, so we can talk a little bit more in detail on some of these issues and topics you raised. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. It was an honor. All right. Well, bless you, and we'll talk again soon. Bless you, too. Thank you for joining us today for the Christian Emergency Podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe and give us a five-star review. Also, tell your friends about us and ask them to subscribe as well. To learn more about the Christian Emergency Alliance or financially invest in our ministry, visit us at www.christianemergency.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you again for listening and stand strong out there.